Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner. I'm here today with three other people, three wonderful people. My co-host today is Madeline Catton. And did I say it right? Yeah. Okay. And she's going to be graduating in days, <laughs> days from now. Well, should we worry about your final papers or projects? Oh, she's pretty confident, <laughs> so we'll see. And... Then I'm going to let my other guests introduce themselves, but I have to say today is a family affair. So Georgie is my niece, and Sebastian has been around long enough to be whatever that would make you. My nephew? All right. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and talk about the arc of their careers, and then we'll get into um, what art is. Are we going that deep? We'll be talking about who knows what. We've we've thought up several conversations since we started talking about this, and who knows where this will go. But welcome and thank you, Madeline, for joining us today. It's nice to have you to have you back. It was a semester ago. Yeah, great. Okay. Hi, Madeline. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice I'm, to meet you. <laughs> Hi, Mary, my lovely auntie. <laughs> uh, this is Georgia, and um, I am from New York City, born and raised. I am a, an artist, uh, working primarily as a painter, but also dabbling in sculpture and collaborative, other collaborative projects, curatorial things. Um and my career, I just got stumped with this question recently. Um, someone asked me, how long have you been an artist? And I thought it was a funny and dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's question number three on my list here. <laughs> no, I, that's a little harsh. But um, no, I was stumped because uh, it's not. I don't, it's not something that... I started uh, that I thought of as a career, I guess. Um, and growing up in New York City with so much culture and so much stimulation, it's just you're kind of born into it, even if you don't uh, practice um, art or make art. Um, I think you're just kind of innately like drawn to the arts. Yeah, like, and your mother is so creative, and your mother was always painting. Yeah, yeah, but even if she wasn't, I think that mm-hmm. um, at least in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there was so much going on in the 90s, um, a lot of artists in the East Village um, responding to um, gentrification and politics, and and in, in their response, they were making art. Um, so I saw that, like, all over the neighborhood in the city with um, galleries and outdoor sculpture and um, uh, protests and, uh, yeah, just yeah, a- everything. Everywhere. Yeah, it, it, I mean, people express themselves through sculpture. There's a guy in the neighborhood who um, would just mosaic everything, um, the the light posts and the street signs and um, the fences, and um, that was his practice, To and he was you know, beautifying the neighborhood or, um, and using a lot of found materials. So people were being creative about, um, just the, yeah, what they were making their art with. Um, but I did go to formal art school in Chicago, 
um, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is in the museum there. And um, then I did go to grad school in New York um, at the New York Studio School, which is a small artist-run school that was started in the 60s um, as a response to uh, the the newer, uh, more commercial art schools that were popping up all over the country. Um, so they were a small group of artists that um, got a loft in uh, Tribeca or Soho and um, designed their own classes and taught each other and had lectures. And then slowly it became a for- more formal thing and they got a building and um, and it still exists today and the it's still very small and... Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. I went there, graduated in 2019, and I've been um, working on my art in, in New York City since then. So, And in between college and graduate school, you did internships, right? That yeah. You, I mean, that seemed like it was a, a productive time for you, too, that in-between... Apprenticeship. Apprenticeship. Yes, yeah, yeah. So in-between undergrad and graduate school I think there's like eight years um and I was interested in conservation and I took this um I did an internship in uh in the summer sometime in undergrad with a a woman who specialized in a craft called Vera Glumise which is gilding on glass it's reverse painting and gilding on glass and Gilding is applying precious leaf onto the surface of, of glass, um, so gold leaf, palladium leaf, um, silver leaf, and, and making reflective mirrors. Um, and you can kind of draw into the leaf like uh, like paper and, and, and make designs. And, um, and so I worked in the studio uh, one summer, really enjoyed it, came back to New York after... Um, undergrad in Chicago and took a job with her, took an apprenticeship and was there for five years um, doing doing kind of um, large-scale like architectural things. Um, so wall panels, ceilings, furniture, uh, tabletops, and then some restoration. Um, it's a lot of labor. The materials are incredible. Everything is... Um, it's all very meticulous, and um, once I I felt like I kind of mastered it, I, I got I got bored and and wanted to move on. So, yeah, and and then I lost interest in cons- in conservation. It burned it yeah, out of even you? yeah, even though that was more of like an inter- ended up being kind of a craft that was used for interior design. Um, well, that was one of the questions that you and I were talking about the other night, because for me, it's it's kind of an interesting thing, and maybe this reveals too much about myself, but the meticulous work required of so much art is, I don't even know how to say it nicely, but how do you prevent yourself from getting bored? So. To me, it looks like the inspiration comes to you, and you have this great idea, and you gather the materials, and it's all fun up until that point. But then the execution of so much of art looks so time-consuming and precious and 
tedious. How, how do you not get bored? Am I wrong about that? Or how do you not get bored? I think a With, lot of people find pleasure in the process itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sebastian decided to talk, so yeah. now we have to. You have to introduce yourself, Sebastian. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs>、um, I'm Sebastian. I was born in Yugoslavia or in Slovenia, formerly Yugoslavia, and moved to the United States as a kid.、Um, I studied architecture and fine arts at the University of Virginia, and worked as an in architecture as a designer for a long time, and then got. Uh, bored of staring at a computer screen for sixty hours a week, working on somebody else's vision, and decided I wanted to do my own thing. And、uh, for a while, had a stint doing events production and design, and fabricating sets and props、uh, for stuff all over the world. And most recently, I'm embarking on a career in. Furniture making and kind of back into architecture, but more on the design build side of things. And,、yeah. and to go back to that question, would you?、Uh, here's the rude question or the dumb question: Would you think of yourself as an artist, or do you want to put another label, to, or should we just drop this label thing altogether? I would think I'm.、Uh, I don't know, an artist. In what sense? Like an artist means a very can mean very different things, but the way that people use the word artist in New York City in this pop cultural kind of way, I would say no. I don't. I I don't think what I do is fashion adjacent, which is what a lot of so called artists. It's like what they seem to be doing is, I don't know, more pop. But I'm more interested in. Expressing myself through kind of perfecting a craft and perfecting a medium. So, would you be happy with artisan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are these cultural hierarchies that get put、uh, yeah, on these words. Yeah, and I don't. I'm not sure where creativity falls in all these things, because and the, back to the question of having to be meticulous. I mean, whether you're an artisan or a crafter. Or an artist, there seems to be, to me, a lot of time spent in the mechanical—is that the word—or the technical、yeah. of getting it right. You know, getting it precise. And and if everybody's doing that, right? If everybody's doing that technical part of it, and everybody's relying on inspiration. Where is that line between artisan and artist and crafting? I'm not sure. I know, M- Madeline. You're you're an artist. What's your take? I think the crafting part is a little contested because of how much crafting was dismissed, especially because it being associated with women and their labor. So I think it definitely ties into however you express yourself creatively, and then that artist could be an umbrella term for all of it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think of of knitting that I do a lot, and the time it takes. But I'm not, I'm not doing the design often. I mean, I may tweak it when I get it. So I would never call what I do when I'm knitting art, because I'm just making a sweater that's already been designed and choosing the colors are creative. And maybe I'll add something 
of my own, but I wouldn't call that art. What would you call it? I would call it a hobby or craft. Craft. Fabricating. Fab. A, ma- a maker, <laughs> yeah. like like um, Morgana called it a couple weeks ago. So. Well, I guess you're not you're not like you're not really challenging yourself or or taking any risks. Yeah. And I, For sure. I think that that's where art kind of comes in. Yeah, I like that distinction. So how do you talk about that risk? Like, what is at risk? The craft, the poly- the concept. Um, yeah, so can you can I can I get my vision? It's it's kind of it's kind of going. I don't know. You kind of want to get to that threshold where you're you're on the you're on the boundary of what's been of done kind of before? losing yourself or, or losing the craft, and, but still getting an idea across. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Does Do that you, make any sense? Yeah. I, I, th- I think especially that idea of losing yourself does. If if by that you mean you get so involved in the process and in the creativity of it that you're stepped outside of your ordinary kind of concerns. Is that what you mean? I like the sound of losing yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. What, did, what was the last thing you said? <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, where the inspiration, how that really delineates the difference between, like, a utilitarian craft that's been done for centuries that you don't take any further. I mean, there, okay, since we're talking about knitting, there are some designers who are doing amazing things, and they're artists. But if you're not doing the design portion, it seems to me you're just following instructions and you have limited creative input. Mm -hmm. And so then I wouldn't qualify that as art. Then it becomes more mechanic. Then it becomes more mechanic. Yeah, or utilitarian. I mean, I hear what you're saying, Madeline, that women's... Crafts have been dismissed for a long time, but there still <laughs> seems to be does seem to be a line for me between artist and hobbyist and I think there's an element of perfecting of, of a craft or expanding the boundaries of a craft mm-hmm. that gets into art making mm-hmm. um, I know like. In jazz, there are standards, and people are playing the same music, and you know, not saying that playing jazz standards is exactly the same thing as knitting a sweater from a pattern. <laughs> yeah, but, the, but kind of in a very basic conceptual way, they are similar, and there are ways that you express that pattern or that standard that then you're making it your own. It's your own expression of that parameter that is the art. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Madeline? Do you want to introduce kind of your source of your inspiration, or where? Well, maybe we should start with: Do you consider yourself an artist? Uh, yeah, but I don't really put that much 
thought behind it. Now that I'm sitting in this room, I'm like, I'm like at some point was like, yeah, I'm an artist. And I'm like, what That's did I do? An artist? That's why I was stumped when someone asked me, how long have you been an artist? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not like a, like a career or desk job. It's not like, oh, I've been working. You got your certificate. Yeah. Yeah. Two years. But yeah. Sebastian, back to your answer. Like we put these cultural hierarchical sure. status words together in order to box people in. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. Um, and and maybe that's just about economics in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, it is, and I think art in the way that it functions as a commodity as a good is just another commodity and good. Like it's it functions no differently than buying milk currently like as a product that is bought and sold and so that's kind of an interesting thing when you put these kind of philosophical questions about what an artist is but then it's still sold on the market and taxed and their documents and their you know like stores that sell it like what about yeah. the dairy man or the dairy woman or like what philosophical questions uh, are there about them <laughs> it's kind of like, what is the difference between a maker and seller of any good and an artist? Okay, well, now you asked it. You have to answer <laughs> it. <laughs> I don't know. One thing, because I've been working in design as an architect and as a uh, you know product designer, furniture maker that's a fabricator, that is a big distinction, or big distinguisher between art and craft or art and design and fabrication is who the client is. And when working in architecture, a client comes to you and they hire you for a specific task and you have these parameters that they're hiring you for. But as an artist, ultimately, if you're trying to be commercially successful, you have to sell a product, but you're kind of your own client in a way. Um, you're expressing your own creative vision. Yeah, you might get commissioned by somebody to paint something um, or you might get to do, I don't know, an album cover or something, but that's kind of where art and design start to merge. But kind of mm -hmm. the pure, like a painter or a sculptor, I guess it's not as clear who the client is. Right. You're hoping for a client. You're hoping for a client, but it's still, you're hoping that somebody likes your vision. But people aren't giving you a prompt. You're giving yourself a prompt and you're hoping that that sticks culturally and politically. When you're when you're doing conceptual art, when you're thinking about the art that you want that you want to make, when you're thinking about not the art you want to make, but the object you want to make, or the vision you want to convey, are you are you ever thinking about the the potential client, or or how about if you think if I ask it this way, I actually wrote it down. Do you think about how your work challenges you? as the maker, or do you think about how it challenges your viewer, the viewer of the art? Or do you never think about the viewer? Especially with conceptual art. Like if you're conveying an idea, and I'm, I'm relating it maybe to writing, you're always thinking about your audience. Or you're often, not always, but you're often thinking about how can I get this idea across in a way that somebody else will understand. Are you doing that when you are creating a sculpture or a painting? 
in terms of the concept? Mm-hmm. Um, with a painting, I try, I consider it, but I try not to because painting should be open to interpretation. So it, if you're defining it, if it, if then you're closing a door. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's if it's if it's like a performance piece or or something bigger, that's a totally that's something different. Um, and and so, especially if it's participatory, you know, Sebastian and I collaborated on some projects and one project in particular, like we really did have to consider the viewer and the concept and the concept. Was that the, was that the film I didn't watch? Today? Yeah. And the concept had to be. <laughs> and I'll put the sound. Link. I'll put the link to it and I'll yeah. watch it again. Um, so, yeah, it really I think it depends on, oh, on the kind of art you're making. But going back to the commission thing, um, there. I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with Matisse's Red Studio, but uh, he made this paint. It was a commissioned painting. Uh, He was already an established uh, artist. He was in his, I don't don't know exactly how old he was, but he was old. And uh, he changed, the the commission had specific parameters, um, colors and... um, imagery that they wanted in in the painting and he made the painting and he disliked the painting he was unhappy and he made it again and uh and he made it again and then ultimately he just took red paint and just filled everything in and it became this big red painting and they rejected it which i find astounding because like Matisse was so established. Everyone wanted Matisse, and um, no one rejected his work, and yet he stood by it. And I'm sure he must have been hurt a little bit by it. I can't imagine that he wasn't, but he still stood by the painting, and uh, I'm not sure if he got paid or what happened, but the painting ended up going to a restaurant, I think, and they had it on loan or something and it was hanging in this uh this club in London maybe and then now it's one of his most famous paintings I mean and it's the most modern and it's like the it's it's the example of of modernism or whatever when you look at the textbooks it's Matisse's Red Studio yeah so there was real risk yeah so that yeah exactly and that yeah, exactly. And I wonder, yeah, it'd be interesting to read what he was thinking at the time, right? Like what he thought of the painting. Obviously, he must have on some level liked it, but yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it, it was a huge risk to just cover a whole painting with red. It sounds like he didn't like a couple iterations of it and then just kind of in this gesture of resignation almost painted it red and then that ended up being this the modernist decisive moment in a way in his career how far along was modernism at that point that must have been one of the really earliest iterations of it wouldn't it have been i guess so i haven't studied art history in a decade (laughs) 
Madeline, you were the one in school. Uh, first, it was Impressionism, post-Impressionism that started to get the gears rolling. But I think Fauvism sort of is like the early workings. And then what we really associate with modernism is later with like Bauhaus and all that jazz. So, so that would put him really early. A little early, kind of in the middle of the workings of it. I don't know if that even he makes He started sense. as a fo- as a Fauvist. Yeah. So. Okay, y'all have to define. Oh, fancy, <laughs> fancy art word. Define, please. This is what Google's for. You're fresh. You're you're almost fresh out of school. I'm scared of sounding like a dummy. Um, (laughs) That's all right. Yeah. People can check it out. Where it went from, we're not painting like tightly rendered things, we're painting like loosely with brush strokes and visible because of the invention of like tubed paint with Impressionism. Fovis were like, what if we just did colors however we wanted? And kind of like when you look at it, like yellow and blues on a face instead of actual colors. So like uh. the red actually makes a lot of sense to me. And if he was starting out Fovis, I don't know why they would be like, except I guess because it wasn't what they commissioned. But I think it's really lovely and it makes total sense for someone who started as a Fovis. How do you even spell that word? Can, can you, I, I've never heard that word. I think it's F-A-U-V-I-S-M, Fauvism. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, things we're learning today. <laughs> I, I'll put a link to this on the, webs, on the website as well. Yeah, we're looking at the picture on our phone, and it's amazing. Yeah, it like a big differentiator between the Impressionist use of color and the Fauvist use of color was that the Impressionists were using this kind of combination of colors to still get across a certain naturalism and yeah, realism, yeah. but the Fauvist kind of threw the grounding and reality out the door. Yeah. And so it was kind of this, the color was used in a purely abstract way. Abstract yeah. and symbolic way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Thinking of that, how, and you've done, I know, and, and you must have too, um, have done a lot of work collaborating with the other artists. Right. And then so how does that work with your vision? How do you how do you meld your vision? Does one of the artists generally take control? Are you bouncing ideas back? I'm sure it works all kinds of ways. But in your experience, do you like working collaboratively with another artist? Either one of yeah. you. Yeah, I love working with other people because it's a division of labor. Oh, we're back to the meticulous <laughs> hard work of it. No, but like making anything, even a sloppy, quick painting is still takes time and effort and material. And But people often, I don't think paintings are really the most common things people collaborate on, though there are many interesting examples of that. But George and I collaborated on this project we were talking about just a minute ago. And, Wait, but will you explain your project a little more? Yeah, it's a... Uh, the labor, though, is exciting. You learn from the labor, and then that's... You reap from the rewards. You, yeah, you, you yeah, the harder something the, is, yeah. the the more rewarding it is to oh, yeah. complete Okay, it. Yeah. this is what everybody says about anything. Everything. No, well, I don't like that answer. Well, so it's, it's saying, easy, it's boring. Exactly, ah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. But the hard work... <laughs> Also goes wrong. Yeah, but that's... And then nobody sees the hard work of it. That's one of the, the things sure. about challenging and yourself and taking a risk. I'm and, really way and too that's, shallow. No, that's really frustrating. I've had days and days in the studio where I, I 
want to cry and pull out my hair because I can't get anything I mean, to work. I, but then I when really it works, think... it's it's. Or you put thousands of it's dollars like the light bulb of has gold just leaf gone on off. a piece yeah. of glass and somebody runs something into it and the corner chips yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I think that that that's a a reason why a lot of people aren't more creative uh, because yeah. of the hard work of it and the frustration of it and then the, the lack of acknowledgement of that hard work yeah yeah it's yeah but yeah, sorry I cut you oh, off yeah. so you should continue oh our project um <laughs> so we've we spent a lot of time out in Joshua Tree in the desert and we do a lot of outdoor stuff and like these extreme environments and so we wanted to create a collaborative project to get people more engaged with that specific environment and um, so we proposed a hyper site specific tent um, that people in a sort of temporarily activated performance site specific sculptural way would interact with the uh, geology and the uh, um, environment uh, and the landscape in Joshua Tree. So we found an area of boulders on some public land that you hike out to. We designed this shelter that only fits there. It is directly re uh, corresponding to the shape of the space and the shape of the boulders. And you go and you spend the night there. It's a fully immersive, ex like, Kind of highlighted experience of pulling the micro of that the conditions of that site and putting that on display for whoever is having this uh sculptural experience um and uh and another big part of the project um is to get uh people to think about the extreme environment and the conditions in which uh, people live in and, and question why they live in these places, um, like the desert. Um, so we wanted to set up something that was uh, that's re relating to more nomadic traditions where you're you're coming and you're setting some you're setting up a tent and then you're you're leaving no trace and. Um, so in that instance, you really were thinking about how the viewer would understand the art. I mean, the, yeah. uh, you had your audience in mind from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. there yeah. You have to hike out a few miles to this site, and then you set this tent up, and you spend the night. And so it has to function. Like, uh, there are certain parameters, like the basic shelter and you know, shading from the really scorching sun and uh, there's really windy out there at times and so blocking the wind. And so... What kind of feedback did y'all get from that project? And from whom did you get the feedback? <laughs> well, it's, the project is still kind of in the works. Um, we did a uh, presentation of it. When in, was that? Last spring. Last spring. And we did a camp out. Yeah, we took a group of people, friends and acquaintances out and spent the night and, you know, did kind of a Q&A. People got to experience the shelter and then uh, hopefully at some point it might be public facing where people can go and do this on their own. Um, 
COVID kind of threw a wrench in a lot yeah. of people's plans for public facing art projects. But uh, the feedback we got was pretty positive. There are, you know, people ask interesting questions about um, w- one that got brought up that was pretty fascinating that we ended up having to do some research about is what the kind of native history of the area was. And uh, it kind of fit in line with our project in that the people were very nomadic. There was, you kind of can't be permanent in the desert. And that's that was how people lived in the area. They would roam around um, when certain plants and animals were, you know, trying to not get scorched by the sun. And so there are not a lot of uh, kind of traces of long-term permanent settlement there. But no, that's, they were always passing through yeah. um, to go to the next place yeah. that had water and food, agriculture, or places where they could grow. Um, You can't really have either in the desert. So um, it's interesting to see that there's so so much development, and and more so even today, even with, you know, all the fires and things happening in California. It's it's not deterring anyone. And and the lack of, yeah, lack of water coming to um, Southern California. So it's... Yeah, that was, yeah, I think that's a big, big question. Those are the big questions, yeah. kind of how artwork and that one in particular fit into the kind of identic, identity and environmental politics of Southern California. Right. And especially, we're not from there. We just have spent some amount of time there. When you're doing a piece of art that's that transitory... Are you thinking about the ephemeral nature of the art? Does that ever cross your mind or change the way maybe you approach it? Ephemeral in what way? Like Meaning you're going to put it up and then it's going to come down. Yeah. And nobody's ever going to see it again. Or... Yeah, I mean, the point of that project is it is ephemeral. It's to exist only for this certain amount of time while somebody's experienced it experiencing it and what they take away is the experience not not a physical thing and it's it's guided by leave no trace principles which is trying to make as low impact of a impression on the environment and kind of a big part of the project was also this concept of rewilding that you know humans are animals and to kind of reintroduce people into what it's like to there's a life cycle and nothing's permanent yeah mm-hmm. yeah so yeah we weren't trying to make any sort of monument yeah yeah especially in a place we're not from no i know yeah. i i but that's kind of what's interesting to me is the recognition from the get-go yeah that what you're making is not gonna have a lasting component to it yeah and the lasting component it, is the it's video pedagogical. And, yeah, well, in yeah. that case, yeah, it's right? Documentation, you have a, and yeah, then, the drawings, the tent, the tent itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all the research. But that's like any sort of performance-based. Yes. Art is like yes. that. Yes, and a lot of conceptual art too. It's just the documents that end up surviving. Yeah, I mean, back to music. Yeah. The that the na- the just ephemeral nature of making music. 
Yeah, not a lot it's, of people can hear the music just by looking at notes on no, the page. No, yeah. not many of us can. And and before there were recordings, of course, it was always here and there. I just think it's another interesting component to the artist's commitment to their work, right? That you're going to do this thing, then it's going to be gone. No, I mean, a lot of life is like that, I know. But art in particular where the quest is in some sense to create something of beauty or meaning and then it just is gone yeah that's why art as a, com- a market commodity is kind of an interesting like a wrench thrown into you know this philosophical idea of what art is because this project there's no way to commodify it no way mm-hmm. to I mean, we could rent people, like rent the tent to people, but um, that's not the point of the project. But we were just down in Miami for Art Basel, and it's an entire global art fair with millions of dollars of art getting slung left and right. It's, it's hustling, and the capital A art part of it is extremely secondary. Yeah, you were talking about that the other day, Georgie, and... You were noticing two distinctive types of art that were presented. Do you want to talk about that a little bit or not? (laughs) Okay. Not on the record. Not on the record. (laughs) Well, I mean, the economic component of it is definitely interesting. Yeah. And what, what what it's like to be an artist in America is different than what it's like to be an artist in places where you know they the artists receive a stipend right um, from the government yeah it says a lot you about know? how the yeah. culture or the the government of these places and the culture of these places values art uh and its place in society and you know a lot of northern europe it's the art output of these cultures is a representation of the culture on a global scale and they they, they value how painters and sculptors and performance artists and musicians and writers represent German yeah. culture on a global scale. In America, it doesn't really seem like America as a political entity really puts much value. I mean, in hit, in times in past, they have. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of modern art was kind of part of this Cold War psyops uh, kind of posturing against Russia and, you know, Western Europe and America were promoting art as a, as kind of a, a way to show cultural and, uh, and a political elitism over the Soviets. And it's interesting when art and gets weaponized like way, that. Right? Yeah, and they yeah, use it the same way. That is really interesting. Um, but that was kind of the last time that art seemed to be heavily funded and promoted by the federal government in America. I mean, how do you support yourself as an artist? Design jobs. <laughs> yeah, so you have to do something on the side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or you yeah. work for other artists that have established themselves. Yeah. What do you think the cost uh, to society is that we don't that we don't pay artists? We don't. Do you have an answer? 
I mean, I think people are always going to make even in the most dire circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's definitely doesn't help if you don't have the material needs met. Like, I think even beyond not funding artists, the way we treat people and mm-hmm. don't give a shit about their material needs is generally very yeah. bad. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not unique to artists. Yeah, but it definitely doesn't particularly help. <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah, a very oversimplified I mean, li- answer. I guess um, my thinking is that we don't really support education too yeah. heavily in this country. I mean, you think what elementary school teachers get paid and... Think about food and health care. Um, but what does it do to a society that doesn't take care of kind of basic needs or inspire visions of beauty and truth? The classic idea of art, right? Yeah. Of truth and beauty and it changes our value system which is why yeah are not only artists our artists aren't just the only ones that are suffering it's yeah teachers students yeah. i mean i think you yeah. can look at a grand, yeah. grand thing but i mean it would be amazing to support art in uh more systematic ways yeah so that cities and towns could rely on a certain beautification that would enrich all of us. I mean, there is nothing more inspiring than to be in nature where the beauty is right all around you in kind of classic way. But I feel that way when I come on campus and I walk down the alley of the Pin Oaks. There's a certain grandeur that someone has planned Right. right, to create this beautiful atmosphere in which we then are all lifted up. I don't mean to sound too phony or fakey, yeah. no, but, but I, I do think it has a real impact. I agree. There's a, there's a sense of curiosity that's lost that I think is really important, an important condition that we should all experience. And that, yeah. yeah. There's, there's also this sense of hope that I think is generated in the sense that there's beauty to be had in the world, there's care. I mean, when you see the gardening around here, right, there's real care yeah. that you can see somebody is put into the property. And I do think it rubs off. Like, you don't want to trash this, you know, the ground, throw your wrappers on the ground. Or, and you notice it, and it, it does have an impact. And I'm not sure we do a lot of that um, when we concentrate on building strip malls with, yeah. You know, one store after another that you can see in any city in America over and over and over again. Yeah, the homogeneity is uh, it lacks it lacks inspiration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well kind of beyond beauty and inspiration, uh what do they say that art holds a mirror to society? Maybe the reason why we're not funding the arts or promoting the arts that much in this country is because we don't like what we're seeing. Maybe that's why there is a lack. I mean, a lot of contemporary art is not objectively beautiful. And that's, I think, a result of this kind of societal conditions that we've been talking about, you know, not valuing edu- education, building strip malls everywhere. So you and get the art you deserve kind of, as a yeah. society? Yeah. yeah. I will say that the art that I saw at the fair, uh, uh, there was a lot of, okay, so there was a lot of historical art that, um, by dead artists that is guaranteed 
you know, some significant value. And then there was a lot of um, uh, aesthetically, like, pleasing art that wasn't challenging. So I think, yeah, yeah if we're going to relate. Decoration. Yeah, artistic, more, yeah, artist decoration. So yeah. um, if we're going to say that what we, yeah, art, contemporary art is kind of expressing what we are as a society i think that's maybe what what's happening <laughs> well yeah it's i do think it's a loss in a society that doesn't cultivate artists doesn't allow them to work um and have to spend so much time thinking about <laughs> How am I going to pay the rent? Yeah, you know, and I think of France. Uh, Georgie's sister is a uh, a musician in France and gets a stipend every month that will pay her rent. I mean, enough. Sure, she has to go out there and play gigs and make money, yeah. but she's got enough to pay her rent, which frees her up in yeah. incredible ways. Yeah. You know, that's extraordinary from our perspective. Yeah. Plus, she has health care, right? <laughs> Plus, she had a free education. Um, I mean, I think Americans have a lot of uh, values to reevaluate. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also interesting, kind of, we're, we're kind of slinging it at American culture right now, but America is arguably the biggest consumer of the arts in the entire planet. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of an interesting one. Well, New emerging economies. Well, that's that's a result of uh, art as a commodity. It starts to become a collectible. Yeah, and that's not really what what we're thinking about. I mean, that's another way of commoditizing it, mm-hmm. yeah, as opposed to finding inspiration through yeah. it. There is an kind expression of, a, of a, I don't know. I'm I'm t- now I'm just talking, yeah. but there is an interesting equalizing uh, kind of post-political effect that kind of universally accepted as significant and good historical art has, like a Rembrandt in a museum. And there was a really interesting example of this recently uh, in Europe when climate activists were throwing soup at historic work. It wasn't to destroy that work, but I think that it's interesting because they were doing it in an art museum on to historically significant art, uh, the reaction was specifically targeted. They were targeting a reaction from this kind of centrist, um, art-appreciating, like, Western global public, or not even Western, just kind of this global public. If they had thrown it at some sort of contemporary, weird piece of art, one entire spectrum wouldn't care. If they had thrown it into some sort of you know, like historical artifact, nobody would have cared, but it was deliberate what they chose. And it's these things that we've decided as being kind of generally beautiful as a larger society. And that, that I thought was an interesting example of the equalizing quality of mm-hmm. beautiful art. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'm talking way above my pay grade <laughs> in these questions. Madeline, do you have any other questions you want to ask or 
Not particularly. A dress? <laughs> I can think of. Um, well, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I didn't get to hear what Madeline does as an artist. Um, I primarily paint and draw. I like drawing all the time. Um, so it's interesting because I was listening to the beginning of this conversation. Some of it I was like, I don't know, because I don't think that I particularly create with like an audience in mind all the time. And I don't particularly like feel compelled to sell my art and so think of like a buyer um or like the concept out there it feels like I almost wanted to chime in but then I was a little intimidated of like what if art is like a filtering of the world through you and thinking to like the last time I was on this podcast of like talking about Merleau-Ponty and strange creativity and like inspiration and like Mary saying like where do you take inspiration and like how it comes from inspiration and respiration and breathing in and out and like Ponty's even or Merlot Ponty's obsession with like Cezanne and going back to how we were talking about the Impressionists and like taking something and just regurgitating it through yourself as a way of like comprehending the world. And I think that's almost an interesting perspective to bring up because I feel like that's the way that I kind of think about art. I don't know. I thought that would be something interesting. Maybe you have thoughts about that too. <laughs> no, I agree with that. I, I think that's a really, I think that's actually a, a hard, difficult thing to do. Um, to, to um, cancel out all the outside voices and to, and to really look out, but look in and distill everything that you're experiencing. And I think that a lot of great art, art that speaks to an audience has that because only you know what's going on inside your head. No one else can read your mind. So if you can translate that um, into something physical, then you're communicating. Well, that sounds like therapy too, right? <laughs> yeah. where you're where you're filtering the world and your experience of the world just on a personal level. That sounds very edifying. Yeah. Or, sorry. Yeah, you were well, mentioning like the work aspect of it and how it's interesting because we're talking about like capital and how art almost becomes a capital and how I think of labor in like the American sense where like I, everyone's so alienated from their labor. Yeah. But the work behind art doesn't feel like this daunting task. It feels like something imperative that I have to do to be able to like keep going. Like mm-hmm. what is life without filtering something through me and creating a silly little drawing all the time? Like – I don't know. It doesn't I've feel. I've seen like... your silly little drawings. They're awesome. <laughs> Thank you. They're not. They're not silly. I mean, it's just because in the grand scheme of things, it's like it's just. I don't know. That's what you do. Yeah. yeah, and like you're you're saying, you draw all the time, Georgia. You're always painting and stuff. There's clearly some yeah. sort of innate need to express and to investigate and to be creative. And I think that's the root of what it is to mm-hmm. be creative. Good. Well, we've gotten to the end, and we've come up with a very interesting <laughs> definition. You were holding out on us, Madeline. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, yeah. Georgie, yeah. for Thank asking you. her. Because yeah. I was just going to let it pass. You <laughs> could see that's... the wheels turning. Yeah. I could. I could see. <laughs> Maybe I was looking sideways. I'm so glad you added that, because yeah. it is a very interesting perspective I think we missed. Oh, um, <laughs> but then you also have the ego to contend with. Yeah, punch it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, well. 
That's um, another conversation. That's a, that's a whole other problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that even art can't solve, yeah. I think. <laughs> exactly. Well, do you guys want to finish up with how you ruined dinner for us? <laughs> a story about it? We have a good story. I'll let Sebastian... I'll see if I can remember it. Um, A few years ago, we were... uh, Hosting a dinner. We were hosting a dinner, and we are Georgia is acquainted with a famous chef's wife who is also in her own right uh, fairly established and has a renowned cookbook. And uh, they were over at our apartment, and um, there's a lot of... uh, Yeah. Big high stakes when you're cooking for a world-renowned chef or chef. Yeah. Um, We overcooked the salmon, and it was kind of embarrassing, but it was also a result of another person at the dinner. Who Sebastian didn't get along with. Yeah, we didn't get along with because he was trying (laughs) to tell me how to cook the food, and so it was just – it was this – kind of felt like being on one of these TV shows where you have – a time limit and the celebrity judge and then somebody else that you're supposed to be working with is just not on the same wavelength going back to collaborating. Yeah. George and I are luckily on the same wavelength. So it's collaborating is nice, but it wasn't a good collaboration. And we, and you, we overcooked the salmon and it was, yeah, it had ramifications. It had ramifications. <laughs> oh, do tell. Surely the wine covered some of those covered um, up some of those ramifications. Yeah, but when you start off on a uh, uh, down note, the wine sometimes <laughs> continues the downhill trajectory. Oh, that sounds like a bad yeah. dinner. Well, thanks for sharing it with us, <laughs> and thanks for coming on, and Madeline, thanks for joining us today. Thank it was you a for real pleasure. Me. Yeah, it was great. All right, till we meet again. Bye. Bye. <laughs>